your host, Joshua Sapolsky. Today on the podcast, we really just talk about one thing, which is how the fuck can we get Donald Trump impeached? But first, a word from our sponsor. USAA is passionate about what they do, ensuring the financial security of the military community and their families. As an employer, USAA creates conditions for employees to succeed. USAA is hiring for customer service reps, designers, developers, insurance, banking, and more. Visit them online and see over 200 jobs available. It's an organization that provides opportunities for you to collaborate, create, and lead. Find your purpose with USAA. Visit usaajobs.com and join the team. Whether you're a small business owner or first-time blogger, HostGator has all the tools you need to build and host your website. HostGator's 24-7 expert support is always available to assist you via live chat or email anytime you have a question. There's even a 45-day money-back guarantee, so if you decide it's not for you, there's no problem. But it's definitely for you. I think you know that. Go to HostGator.com slash tomorrow to sign up and get 60% off. My guest today is the legal editor at BuzzFeed. He's a fascinating man. Well, I'm about to find out if he's fascinating, actually. I'm, of course, talking about Chris Geidner. Chris, thank you for being here. So you must be very, very busy. Yeah, no, I mean, every every morning uh, I get up and my... (laughs) Now, first task is to, uh, once I check to see if I have any uh, text messages or direct messages or Slack messages, uh, is to check the president's Twitter account. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's real. And yeah, it's, it's not, it's, it's it's not something I do for fun. It's not something I, I do because I, I don't have anything else to do. It's because... Something legally significant might have happened right. uh, an hour before I woke up on the president's Twitter account. And what is? I mean, and, that, that's absurd. And no, it's it's. And, and what is like for, for legally speaking? I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, early on, I mean, after he won, I was like, okay, well, the Twitter stuff is going to stop. And then he didn't during you know the transition period, and I thought, okay, well, this will be peeled back. And I started to kind of care less about what he said on Twitter because you could see that, like, what he was saying on Twitter wasn't necessarily – wasn't always related to what was actually happening in the world. It was just sort of like him blowing off steam. But, like, what is the – how do you think about that in your job? Like, how do you think about that in terms of, like, actual policy? Because clearly sometimes he's saying things that do have an impact and reflect reflect a – Well, I mean, here's the difference between him tweeting something on January 18th and him tweeting something on on February 21st. He's the president. (laughs) Like – Right. It's sort of a a reverse of the whole – it, it's legal because I, I'm the president. It, it, this is uh, it, it matters because he's the president, right? Um, like it, it, him blowing off steam when he was like the host of The Apprentice was like all of us on Twitter, um, right? Right. <laughs> him <laughs> blowing off steam when he was the president elect was like, uh, well, that's sort of awkward yeah but it's like okay he'll he'll Um, he'll get out of this habit or like but him tweeting and blowing off steam when he's president is oh a lawyer's going to have to defend that in court right or oh the secretary of state is going to have to make a a call to the ambassador um i mean those are the best case scenarios (laughs) i I mean it, it, it 
it, it is hard to understand, um, but I think the administration is starting to understand uh, with some of the pushback they got uh, in, in court over the past few weeks that that these things that he has said that that everybody was like, well, he's just doing it because that's a convenient way to get votes or he's just doing that to blow off steam or take me literally but not seriously or seriously but not literally, whatever that was. Right. Um, they're finding out that that courts don't like any of those answers because yeah. words are words <laughs> and they're gonna they're gonna look at what those words are. And so I mean, if you assume the the long game of four or eight years here, like they're gonna have to get it under control in one way or another. I mean, it just seems like I mean, especially with the ruling in the in the case of this executive order, I mean, they're looking at statements he's making outside of the office of president, right? They're looking at his how he um, is indicating he will be prior to the presidency, and then saying, "Well, this can this is." I mean, actually, I'd love to hear your your take on this. Like, is the courts clearly said, I mean, at least in my reading and my understanding, yes, this stuff is applicable. The stuff that happened before you were president, the stuff that you've said outside of like your job as president, you know, it seems to me like there are so many ways um, where he is crossing a line. Like, but is this, does it really matter? Will it really matter? I mean, that that is sort of unresolved and that there are some people who who have questioned that part of I mean so we've we've got this this refugee and travel ban uh, with the the travel ban for the seven uh, majority Muslim countries and uh, it, it it goes to court and they uh, they the the people who have challenged it have put in, this stuff that he said from the the original 2015 statement about a total shutdown, a total incomplete shutdown of all Muslim uh, immigration into the country. And, and then the uh, – Well, he actually said Muslims, didn't he? I mean he didn't even say – He said the Muslim. He did, said no, the total but, but and complete Muslim – Bam. But he said, and he um, said that not even relating to my reading of it when he first said it was that wasn't even about immigration. I think he was literally saying, if you're Muslim and you're not in America, you can't come in. Period. Well, I mean, yeah, and that that is technically, I mean, yeah, the there the 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 Muslim ban. I mean, there there were questions in the initial days after the. Uh, that news release came out, whether it applied to U.S. citizens right. well, that, who that's, were Muslims well, that's, abroad. That's what I'm saying um, because it's when you say Muslim, you're not talking about somebody from a specific region. You're talking about a religion, right? right? Well, that, that – I mean so – well, I mean but that's also the pushback is that the federal government's argument, the Justice Department's defense is like, well, this clearly isn't a Muslim ban. This is only the, the one – uh, judge on the Ninth Circuit raised the the point. He's like, these seven countries represent only fifteen percent of the Muslim population in the world. How can you call this a Muslim ban? It, it, it clearly isn't. Right. Um, 
But the the point, and this was this was debated before the trial judge in Seattle. It was discussed in in lots of the other cases. It was discussed in Massachusetts, where the judge sided with the federal government. It was discussed in Virginia, where where the judge sided with the challengers to the ban. Uh, in that case, the the Virginia Attorney General, and. Uh, in the Ninth Circuit and at the trial court, sort of the the question was like, it, it's possible that there, uh, it, it, it's possible that we shouldn't treat uh, a statement made during the campaign in the same way we would treat a statement made when you were president. Like we shouldn't give that the same effect. Because we understand that a campaign is different than a presidency. Right. But the question that uh, the, the, both the trial court and the Ninth Circuit considered is, well, it's one thing to say, like, it's not the same thing as, like, a statement he made when he was enacting it. But it's another thing to say what the federal government was arguing, which is we should ignore that. We shouldn't count that at all. And, and both the the trial court judge and the Ninth Circuit said that that's not true. Right. We're going to consider it. Right. Um, but because of the way that the Ninth Circuit resolved the case, they basically said, we've decided that there is a likelihood that Washington and Minnesota, who had challenged the ban, will succeed in their argument that this violates the due process rights of people. Right. And so because of that, we don't need to decide whether this is a religious discrimination issue. Right. There, there are so other, they, you're saying there, there are other problems that precede. There were it. so many things wrong that right. <laughs> they didn't need to reach the question of whether this was uh, a, a, unconstitutional religious discrimination. <laughs> right. They're like, either. take your, take your pick. It's a, it's a yeah. cornucopia they basically issues. said, we've decided it's likely unconstitutional as a due process violation. So because of that, we don't need to reach the religious discrimination or equal protection questions now. Sure. But if this did go back um, and, and you had a, a full decision on the merits, uh, they made it clear that they were going to consider the, the Muslim ban statement, they made it clear that they were going to consider Rudolph Giuliani's statement that he was basically told, like, find a way that we can do this legally. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's so and, crazy. And I think that that's why now the administration is trying to to sort of smooth this over. But I, I think that's why they've decided uh, the the lawyers at the Justice Department have convinced the White House, like you need a new ban. Like you're you're gonna you're gonna not only potentially lose, but you could create some really really horrible law <laughs> for you as president. Right. Um, right. I mean, remember there was this big part of the ruling about the idea that like the government's claim that this was unreviewable. Right. And the well, Ninth Circuit issued Stephen Miller ruling. said that, right? I mean, that was his. Well, Stephen Miller said that, and, and that was an argument that the Justice Department made that because this is is a a 
area of national security, an area of immigration, uh, that, that these are two different areas where the, the executive has traditionally been given wide deference, um, and that is uh, his constitutional authority as commander-in-chief. It's also his uh, statutory authority, they say, under the, the laws relating to immigration, that they say that the statute that, uh, that, that Sean Spicer and, and uh, President Trump often read, uh, that they say gives the president the, the right to decide uh, when to exclude aliens or classes of aliens from the country. Right. Um, and so they're saying, we've got all of this constitutional and statutory authority. So this is unreviewable. Right. And the Ninth Circuit really slammed them on that and said that there's a difference between deference to the executive branch and unreviewability. And the court has never said that these things are unreviewable. And yeah. I think that the Justice Department, when they got that decision, I think that the Justice Department was like, this is really bad. You want you <laughs> right. do not want this decision staying on the books, President Trump. So 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 what what happens if it stays on the books then? Does it mean does well, it just it open up all books, of his orders? Uh, I mean, it, it is it, it applies to it, it has some really strong language about like there are limits on immigration. There are limits on national security. And those are two things that presidents do not want courts to, to uh, let alone appellate courts, right. let alone the Ninth Circuit, which is like basically the entire Western seaboard. Um, <laughs> I mean, when, when it, that's an, a federal appeals court ruling. And so that, that is the law. In right. Washington, in California, in Hawaii, I mean, in, in a lot of key military and immigration places. Um, and so the, if, if what they actually asked for was, can you put the case on hold? There's going to be a new executive order. And, and then what we want you to do is look at the new executive order. And assuming it passes constitutional muster, we, we want you to vacate the earlier decision. They want it, which would basically eliminate it from existence. So that that's why I think that the Justice Department basically went to the White House and said, hey, <laughs> yeah. you, you might love your executive order. You might love the idea of defending this to the death, but yeah. they're, they're, <laughs> you're going to be president after this <laughs> and no, you I don't mean... want this ruling coming back to bite you on your next executive order. Right. So, so let me ask you this. So after the ninth circuit, if, if Trump wanted to challenge this, does it go to this? Where does it go? Well, I mean, so this was, that's a very good question and nobody's exactly sure because so the trial judge in, in Seattle, when he issued his ruling that basically shut down both the, the travel part and the refugee part, of the ban. He did so in what was a temporary restraining order. And that that's how it was styled. That's what, what it technically said on the document. Um, now, temporary restraining orders aren't generally appealable. 
because they're, they're supposed to be for a short period of time. They're supposed to be in, in place basically until you can get a, a, a fully reasoned injunction. Um, and the, the trial court judge was planning on scheduling that within the next two, three weeks. Um, but the federal government said, no, we want to go up to the appeals court right away and ask for a stay. We want that TRO to be put on hold. And in order to do that, they basically had to convince the appeals court that this wasn't a TRO. It was like a preliminary injunction because right. that would be appealable. Right. And so once they convinced the appeals court of that sort of the question and the the trial court judge flat out asked the parties after the ninth circuit's decision they were he was like so was that a preliminary injunction that i issued is that is that how we're counting this now and if it is should should i just moved on to the permanent injunction question um and it, it was at that point that the federal government sort of, rather than uh, moving forward at the trial court, rather than moving forward at the appeals court, uh, or their final option, which would have been going up to the Supreme Court and asking for a stay uh, pending appeal, right. which basically like asking for the Supreme Court for the same thing they had asked the Ninth Circuit for and lost. Um, and the problem is because of the fact that we only have eight justices right now, they, they were in a really tough position going to the Supreme court on that because well, that's my, that was my question is what happens? I mean, yeah. What is the situation where it gets in front of this gets in front of the Supreme court? I mean, does it? Well, if they don't ask for it at this point, basically the order is on hold. Um, and I think that they probably correctly decided the odds of them being able to, convince five justices to side with them on the staying the TRO or preliminary injunction, whatever you want to call it, uh, was going to be difficult because the the standards there shift because the, the TRO has been issued. And so since it was already issued, basically the, the government bears the burden of proof to get a stay. Right. And so they, they have to convince the Supreme Court that like basically on the basis of what's already been presented in the lower courts, oh. you should reverse those decisions. Oh, so they, so if they have to establish, <laughs> so you're saying if they have to establish this like immediate need on like a national yeah. security basis, because yep. they weren't able to produce anything with the, in the ninth circuit in that it, 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 because they didn't produce anything at that at the earlier point, you're saying they couldn't bring something new. They couldn't go, oh, well, we have to do this because here's the evidence that we have an immediate national security. It would be, I mean, technically, you're at the Supreme Court. You can try whatever you want, but it right. would be difficult. Like you're right. you're not supposed to. Um, and, and even when they asked them, I mean, when at the Ninth Circuit they said, "Do you have anything else?" the the guy's answer was, um, "Well." We're, uh, this has been moving really quickly and we right. don't have anything yet. No, I mean, that's the crazy and part is they didn't even, they didn't <laughs> even try to construct a, uh, like a kind of actual reason for this to exist. It's like they, they like literally when push came to shove in a court, you know, with, in front of judges, they weren't even like, oh no, there's actually some reasons. I mean, they, I, if correct me if I'm wrong, but the judges were like, we can take this into a close, right. They could have done like a kind of 
closed hearing about the evidence, right? I mean, at the trial court level, I'm That's not right, sure right. at the Ninth Circuit how oh, they, they did, I said, Okay, I thought but. it was okay. So here's a question. So I have two questions uh, for you following this. The first is, um, is it, does it seem, and I think you kind of already answered this, but it seems likely that the Supreme Court, it would have been harder to convince the Supreme Court, but there's also, and this is more of a statement I, I kind of want to get your take on it. There's a fun, another like kind of found foundational thing that seems to be going on here, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but because Trump has been attacking the judiciary like on Twitter and attacking the concept of judges in America being able to like do their job, it almost feels like there's another sub-level to this where, um, where it's about defending the judiciary in a way and in its ability to do the, its job, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's as like simplistic as like, oh, he said mean things about us, so forget him. But I do think, I, I mean, I, I, I think the, the, actual way that it probably hurts the administration is they're asking for deference. <laughs> like right. they're literally going to the court and saying, you need to trust us on these important matters and not question what we're doing or why we're doing it. Right. And it's hard to imagine like objectively as a judge, you being like, well, you seem to have a poor understanding of the way that our three branches work. Right. And yet you want us to trust without review your decisions <laughs> about national security. I'm not sure about that, sir. Like, right. I, I mean, just think, think if you were reviewing it, if, if, if you have, I mean, to put it in a totally non-legal concept text, I mean, it, although this gets legal, um, I mean, it, it, if if you have a a friend who you know uh, is cheating on his partner um, <laughs> repeatedly, yeah. and that person comes to you and is like, so would you trust me to borrow your car and your house for the weekend when you're out of town and trust me, nothing, nothing <laughs> sketchy is going to happen. <laughs> right. right. And you're I like, mean, it's, it's... well, um, I'm not deciding against you because of the fact that you cheated, but you, you've undermined your credibility with right, me. Right, right. They're, they're like basically saying, you know, give us the benefit of the doubt. Well, you know we'll do the right thing. And it's like, well, you've already kind of not done the right thing. So there's not a, a lot of ground to stand on. And so this actually – now, there's a question I've been – the whole time we've been talking about this, I've been had this question in the back of my head that I really want to ask, and I feel like you'll have an interesting perspective on. Because everything you're describing at this point sounds like – these guys kind of are fuck ups. Like they kind of have done something very poorly. Like it's a poorly constructed order. They didn't have like when push came to shove and they needed to produce evidence to prove their point, they couldn't do it. They sort of are asking for things that are around, above and beyond what you would normally ask from a judge or from the courts. So but 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 prior to 
I mean, maybe right now people have started to change their opinion, but I'm not sure. There was a, a couple of weeks ago or a week ago or two, maybe let's say it's been two. It's just, again, like I can't tell how long it's been because time is all, all fucked up. But like people started writing these these conspiracy theories that were like – this is the Trump administration is this is the trial balloon for a coup and they're testing DHS. They're testing, you know, what what they'll do, what they won't do. They're testing the court system. Does it seem to you what is more likely, I guess, from in your professional opinion as a as a scholar and a journalist in your professional opinion? Is it likely that they are testing the system to see if they can have if they can um, if they can essentially take over the government? Um, I mean, or are, it's really, really difficult to make these decisions from outside um, about about what the why are things going wrong? Um, and, and I mean, the example that uh, that I've been using is, uh, over over the past two and a half, three years, I've been spending a lot of time following death penalty litigation. And uh, there there have been a bunch of botched executions in a bunch of states over the over the past three years. And the the question often once you get into like actual reviews, like in Oklahoma, they had a a review of the 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 death penalty process in the state and when their report came out um it it was this combination of of uh something bordering on if not going beyond incompetence (laughs) and some sort of malevolent attempts to to hide information or or uh uh sort of intentional wrongdoing, if you will. Right. Um, and, and yet it, it, it's, it's so hard to tell the difference if you're not in the room um, because it, it really is the sort of thing that like, depending on how you look at it, uh, it can look both ways. Right. Um, and now, I mean, the truth is like, this is the beginning of a new administration. I mean, now, now that goes both ways because if you don't have your people in place, does it make it more incompetent or more ill-intentioned right. to act quickly? Like, right. are you trying to sneak something through before you get people in place who will stop you? Or are you just like doing things on the timeline you'd put in place and you just don't have enough people there correcting you when you put something in place that's going in the wrong direction. Right. That's something. And and that's why, um, when, and I think that this can be part of what, what's gone on since the ninth circuit's ruling is that, um, when they went back down to the trial court, the the trial court judge said uh, the the federal government was like, let's hold off on the trial court uh, permanent injunction stuff while we work out the appeal of the preliminary injunction at the Ninth Circuit, because the Ninth Circuit planned a whole 
sort of merits briefing on the actual question of the preliminary injunction. And that's when you would have gotten into all of the questions about how much weight do we give to his like Muslim ban comments and all of that sort of stuff. And the trial court judge said, no, we're going to keep going with the preliminary injunction. And that would have led to discovery, which would have been the federal government having to turn over evidence. And I think that Along with the concerns about the Ninth Circuit ruling, I think that this perspective, this perspective of having to turn over evidence about the actual process that the government went through in implementing the ban, in, in writing and implementing the ban, uh, was sort of worrisome to the federal government because we would see in and get an idea of of under oath <laughs> right. what actually was happening. <laughs> well, under oath, I don't know how much under oath applies to the Trump administration from, from well, what I can tell. They, I mean, they would find out. I mean, in, in fairness, I, I mean, there, there's a difference between, there's a difference between what, uh, I mean, between what people will say politically and what their lawyers will let them say in a deposition. Oh, right. Cause um, there's like stakes in it. Cause right. If you're under oath, there's like actual stakes that are, yeah, I mean, that are they, physical. Well, and, and the lawyers also, I mean, remember the lawyers have their, their law license. Right. <laughs> oh, all, of a, so all of a sudden it, there's like real state. I like how that at the level of the president talking, no real stakes, but at the level of like, you're in a deposition, <laughs> there are now suddenly some, like somebody could lose their job over something, which is, Really well, I mean, you get you get this ever widening circle. I mean, you, you, if you have an individual whose policy is "I don't give a fuck," like that person can go pretty far on his or her own. Yeah, um, and, and we've seen at several <laughs> companies, at several in several governors' offices, in several uh, congressional offices, we've seen how far that can go to screwing things up. Yeah. Um, but once you start widening that circle, um, it gets more and more difficult once you get in accountants in business, once you get in lawyers right. in government. And and people eventually you get somebody lose. who's like, eh, no, no, you, you've gone too far. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to do that. And I think, I mean, we obviously saw that with uh, the acting attorney general. I mean, she decided that uh, th- this was a step too far. And I mean, she clearly knew that, that if she directed the Justice Department not to defend the uh, – new president's key uh order that 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 he was probably uh gonna be done with her uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and she did it anyway well, she, and she, probably she did to it in, to in make a, a statement and in a spectacular uh, in, in a spectacular fashion i think um chris i want to take a quick break uh and then i have and then i and then i have a there's a I have another topic, another legal case that I'm very interested to get your take on. So we will be right back with more Chris Geidner. Needless to say, you love technology. But unfortunately, the blue-violet light that computers, phones, and tablets give off can strain your eyes and put you at risk for long-term eye damage. 
which sounds very bad. Thankfully, Crizal no glare lenses help protect your eyes from the glare of digital screens and the harmful effects of blue-violet light, helping to safeguard your eyes from potential risks. Crizal lenses give you the clearest vision possible by offering resistance to scratches and smudges. That means no more fingerprints from taking your glasses on and off or damage from cleaning your lenses on your shirt. Also, your shirt will stay uh, free of whatever kind of weird stuff is on your glasses. Crizal lenses even protect your eyes from harmful UV light by providing 25 times more UV protection than going without eyewear. And because Crizal no-glare lenses reduce distracting glare, your friends and family can actually see your eyes, not just your glasses, although I've been told people prefer to see my glasses because my eyes are hideous. Look better, feel better, and most importantly, be prepared for whatever comes your way with clear vision. Go to Crizal.com and learn more. That's C-R-I-Z-A-L.com and start living life in the clear. Look, not all ingredients are created equal. I think you know this. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients, courtesy of over 150 local farms, ranches, and fisheries across the United States right to your door. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, there's no food waste. It's everything you need to make sustainable and delicious home-cooked meals in 40 minutes or less. I can tell you I have eaten many Blue Apron meals, and uh, they taste really good. They really are delicious. Some of the meals coming up this month include cashew chicken stir-fry with tango, mandarins, and jasmine rice, udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs, and roasted pork with apple, walnut, and farro salad, and crispy barramundi with quinoa and roasted carrot salad. Just delicious, delicious food that you can put right into your mouth and chew on. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash tomorrow. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash tomorrow. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We are back talking to Chris Geidner. Uh, Chris, I want to know about, uh, we actually, I read this uh, BuzzFeed story a few weeks ago, again, right at the start of Trump's um, presidency, that a group of ethicists and lawyers had, um, had uh, I guess, sued Trump over this emoluments clause. Yes. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and I assume that this is something you've been tracking. I don't know how much you've been writing about it, um, uh, or thinking about it, but I, this is something I'm very interested in because it, at the beginning of when I first heard about this clause, it sounded like, I mean, this could be the real kind of, uh, uh, this could be something that really has impact on Trump and his presidency. It seems to me like he's an incredibly, a compromised president, even if you don't believe the Russia stuff, even if you don't think that he's got, you know, some skeletons in his closet or you think he's got some dirty tax returns or whatever, it seems like his business interests and the fact that he really hasn't divested himself completely of those interests um, and his, in his job as president are at, are at odds. And this emoluments clause seems to get at some of that in a really meaningful way. Can you tell me what, how seriously we should all be taking this or thinking about it? Oh, yeah. It, I mean, the Amoyamon's clause litigation and questions are, are 
both really troubling and <laughs> really difficult to deal with um, because it, it what's the remedy? Um, so remember, I mean, think about this in terms of, of any lawsuit, you, you have to ask for something like, what are you wanting the court to do? Right. Well, what, what are they what asking do for? You, what do you have the court do in this case? Um, a violation of like the emoluments clause. Um, You're fired. I mean, <laughs> right, That's right. They can't do yeah. that. And so, um, I mean, I mean, can, they, they can't. They, they can't say that you're ineligible to be the president if you continue to. Well, it's not an eligibility. It, it is just a violation of the Constitution. <laughs> it, it it doesn't. You're not ineligible if you have. It, it's not like we're finding out that he's uh, 33. Right. <laughs> Where the I mean, it, it it is not a a requirement to be president that you don't have foreign investments. Right. It it is that you cannot receive these things as an officer but, of the United States. So so, so if he's violating them if he's violating that as president, what would the remedy be? I mean, so the things that they're asking for, they're asking for a declaration that he's violating the emoluments clause. Yeah. Um, so a, a legal declaration, you are violating the Constitution. Right. Um, and then they're also asking for him to, to have to divest, for a, an order that he divest. Um, but, uh, I mean... He, it doesn't do what they want. <laughs> right. Um, right. I, I mean, and, and I mean, some of the lawyers who are involved, I mean, so Norm Eisen, uh, one of the, the people from crew who citizens for responsibility and ethics in Washington, who brought the lawsuit, um, who, who was, uh, one of the, the ethics lawyers for the Obama administration, uh, and Richard Painter, who, it was one of the ethics lawyers in the George W. Bush administration. Both are on this lawsuit. Um, but, I mean, what Norm Eisen said was like, I mean, he said, like, one of the things that we hope we'd get from this lawsuit if it goes forward is that we could basically get his tax returns released because we we can't even know how he's violating the emoluments clause because we don't know what all of his foreign investments are. Right. And we don't know what foreign countries have invested in him and, and his businesses. Um, but like the the and uh, I, I have to give him credit. Uh, Mike Sachs has uh, been been pressing this point a few times on on Twitter. I don't know if he's written anything on it, but uh, outside of Twitter, but he he's definitely talked about it a lot. Is the idea that like this is this is sort of like some of those uh, uh, Obamacare lawsuits. Uh, at times in that, like, this is really something that is better handled by Congress that they're trying to push into a legal posture. But right. like, 
I mean, the true way of dealing with a violation of the, the emoluments clause would be impeachment. Is that um, right? That that's how are they trying you to put pressure? Are they trying to put pressure on Congress to to push for impeachment? I mean, but he would. We there'd have to be some discovery. Right? You'd have to see his tax returns, right? I mean, well, that's. No- I mean, I think that what they're hoping for. I mean, so the the first criticism of the lawsuit is that there's no standing. That that the this organization doesn't. Uh, actually have losses and some of the some other legal organizations uh, ag- agree that like at organizational standing wasn't the way to go about this lawsuit that you should find I mean you've probably heard it talked about like find a hotel that would be competing for conference dollars with Trump's hotel in D.C. and have them sue because right. they're actually the ones losing money. Right. And I mean, it's Logan X stuff, not emolument stuff. But how fun would it be if it was Nordstrom's? You, you're saying that it's you know the Sheraton would have to bring a lawsuit or something. Right. Uh, Somebody it, who um, I mean, this is why there there was some news coverage when like some country announced that they were moving their conference to Trump's hotel and that got a lot of news coverage because I, I think the the thought was, oh, well, here's a very specific hotel that used to hold a conference and this year, once Trump became president, isn't. And so right. therefore, uh, that how could you make a more clear case that uh, – that that uh, this is a a loss of of business to this right. company, right? And, and so, I mean, the idea is that, like, I mean, whether it's this lawsuit or another one, that some lawsuit that goes forward to the discovery point where you're exchanging evidence uh, would be able to get information about his foreign investments and what company, what foreign countries uh, might have. Uh, holdings in his companies. Right. Um, and so therefore would be paying money to him while he's president. And the the other question is, is that a violation of the clause? Um, I mean, this, this is, I mean, and this is uh, an argument that's been made by some people that like the emoluments clause was not written about uh, a big businessman who became president. It was written about uh, for the same reasons why we don't have titles of nobility in America. (laughs) It, it It was written about preventing foreign governments from currying favor with presidents. But it was literally like the idea that like somebody would, you know, would want to do a trade deal with us and they would come along and say, we'll give you, we'll personally give you money, whoever you are, Mr. President to do something for us. Um, and, and, and this is a situation where there's like a preexisting business and now he's become president. It's not as if, you know, you'd have to find a case where you could prove, uh, that somehow his position, right. was like your, your, your argument there, the point that you just made rather, so, okay, some business was if impacted by this, and that a foreign government sees it as an opportunity to uh, win some of some favor with Trump, and that becomes you know somehow he's compromised because of that. But it's pretty far away from real. I mean, it's pretty far away from a very provable point. I mean, I guess the reason I'm asking about this is because 
what I really want to get to, and I guess maybe, you know, cause we got to wrap, but, but I mean, like, some, something can be, something can be like really horrible <laughs> and, and also not something that a court is well suited to address right. it is sort of the concern with these emoluments clause right. litigation possibility. It's like, well, yeah, we don't like this, but like as a court, other than saying <laughs> yeah. this violates the constitution. You can't do, there's no action what to take. What can we do? Right. Can, can we force, I mean, even if, I mean, like, let, let's think about it in a sort of ideal sense. Like, I mean, even if, I mean, really in a, an ultimate ideal sense, the only way to, to draw this back to where ethicists would ideally want it to be is for the entire Trump brand to end. Because it's still his name. I mean, it's not just a matter. I mean, a blind trust, you can't have a blind trust when your name is on the building. Like you would literally need to sell. I mean, traditionally when you, I mean, you can actually go back and like, like you would actually have to sell the business and then the trustee who is not one of your children a, a, is a, 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 a arm's length person uh, who you do not have a personal relationship with um, would, would make investments that you would not have access to and would not know about. And, and that is how your money would proceed. Right. And, and so like the only real way to do sort of the, what, what we in our imagination, am I, uh, see as as full divestment when you he, when you hear people talking about full divestment and a blind trust that's what they mean and did did anybody actually think that was going to happen that like we weren't going to have trump brand right that he would right i mean i think i, I don't think that I think the problem is that no one knows what's supposed to happen because this is such an unusual situation. Right. I mean, but- and, and people just didn't think he was, I mean, like everybody makes fun of the fact that like the Trump team wasn't prepared to take office. Let's be honest. Very few people were in the world. Right. <laughs> like, right. They, right. It this wasn't is the, just the not, Trump team, folks. Yeah, this <laughs> like, was not supposed to happen. It was all of journalism. It was all of the Democratic Party. It was all of the Republican Party. It was the Trump team. It was most of the world. We didn't think this was going to happen. And, yeah. And, well, and, and here so we, are. we hadn't really, like, figured out, like, Oh, with, with like adjust classes, here's right. what will happen on <laughs> November 9th. Uh, once everybody gets things together after Trump wins, this is what we'll do. Yeah, literally nobody had a plan for Trump winning, including Trump. So here's my, let yeah, me hear. I, mean, I, hear- I, I care about this. Stuff. I mean, I love this emolument stuff and, yeah. and I love the ethics stuff. And I mean, I remember spending like, the, the two weeks after the election being like, wow, I'm not sure how you even, I mean, like he, he, he literally pastes his name on buildings and that is part of his brand. Like he yeah. licenses his name overseas. How do you untangle 
a contract with a company overseas that has licensed his name that a foreign government owns, like, let's say, like, 5% in in some foreign country that you have, like, 500 investors in that is literally based on his name. Like, there's no way to do it. This is not the question that I was going to, I wanted to ask. I'm going to ask, I have one other question, but could he, if he wanted to, could he just put the Trump logo on the White House? Like, could he do that? Is there anything legally stopping him from putting a Trump logo? I mean, he could, right? Am I going to say no in 2017 no, to I a hypothetical guess, question about what not. Trump could do? Well, that, would, another... that would almost guarantee that he, <laughs> that would, he do would do it, it. if exactly. I say no. Well, I have no, another he hy- can't do that. <laughs> yeah, the tomorrow. Obviously, there's a crane how silly He can't are, quit gosh. and give me all his money. He <laughs> yeah. definitely can't do that. Oh, is that is that's good. You think if you say it, it'll happen? Um, yeah. here, okay, here's, here's, my, here's my final question for you because I know you got to go. Is there – Anything that is going to stop Trump from being president that you can see out there in the landscape that looks like it could turn into something real. And I and, and I am I'm asking for a friend, but I'm also <laughs> I'm also asking for America. I mean, it seems like everything he touches is a landmine. It seems like everywhere he was like the Russia stuff, the emolument stuff, the uh uh you know, him putting Trump on the White House. Uh, the, you know, his, his, uh, his tax returns. Is there anything that I mean, you see? I mean, you're looking at all of this. To put, that can, to put it like the, the reverse, not the reverse. I mean, it is sort of the same, just in a different way of, of uh, Obama's line. Like it, it, it's not the end until it's the end. Um, we, we, we won't know what ends Trump until something ends Trump. Like, right. it, I mean, we've all seen the downfall of enough politicians that, that we know that we can always be surprised. Um, and, and, and we also know that we can be surprised by like what it is that takes somebody down as opposed to all of the things that don't. And so, I mean, like, Anything could. I mean, it, it, it really, I mean, for the next two years, the only thing that will take Trump down is when Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell decide that they're going to lose their majorities. Like, the, I mean, that's the bottom line. The, the only way that Donald Trump gets impeached and convicted would be if Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell decide he needs to go because otherwise we're going to lose the house and the Senate until that point. It's hard to imagine unless, unless something just like so mind bendingly repulsive happens that, 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 we just can't go forth. <laughs> but let's be honest. The, uh, I think the only thing that, we've the, already seen those. That, like I, I don't. Right. I mean, uh, I don't thing, have I a guess, good answer there. I think the only thing it could be is if he, if we find an old tape of him talking about um, how he's into pedophilia. That would be the only thing that could stop I him mean, at this point. I mean, it, it's been a a quite a journey that we've been on with Trump, and I think, I, I mean, I think we've learned that it, it will really only come down to numbers. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and when the House and the Senate now, if if 
if the House and the Senate change hands come come uh, the new the new uh, Congress midterms. in yeah. in after the midterms, then things could change. And, and then there's there's also been talk of the Twenty uh, Fifth Amendment um, and this the the provision that. Uh, a, a majority of the cabinet can effectively tell Congress that that the the president is unable to serve. Now the the president is is able to basically write back and be like, actually, I am, and then the cabinet can can vote again. And <laughs> if they do that, then it goes to Congress, and Congress needs to decide. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I mean that is veering into untested territory. Um, and so, I mean, we'll see, um, what, what happens that, I mean, we, we, we remember, I mean, the, the, there was a point, uh, last summer, if you remember when the, the judge Curiel stuff, um, where, where Trump was suggesting that, uh, a federal judge's uh, Mexican heritage was calling into question his ability to be an impartial judge over a Trump University fraud lawsuit. Um, like this wasn't even an immigration-related lawsuit, um, and and that that did lead uh, Paul Ryan to to sort of back off for a bit in the way that he treated him. And I do think that the the so-called judge comment sort of concerned Republicans, but at the same time, he's president. And they were sort of like, let's just stay quiet and hope that it blows over and that the White House staff can get him under control. Yeah. Um, well, and, and instead, Stephen Miller got on the Sunday shows and said basically the same thing. Uh, so who, who knows? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it it is truly a who knows situation. Um, Chris, I know you need to run, but thank you so much for doing this. I mean, I feel, I actually feel like I got smarter during this podcast, which for me is tough because I don't learn much. I mean, I'm actually pretty, (laughs) my brain is pretty like a trap, but, um, this is super informative and I really appreciate it. And, uh, to anyone listening, if you don't follow Chris, Follow him on Twitter. Um, uh, read what he writes on BuzzFeed. His stuff is super interesting. And he's like, you're like, I mean, you know, one of the most interesting, I think, one of the smartest writers on this topic. And I think covering it, what's, what's really good for me and I think a lot of people reading is you get a lot of very kind of stuffy writing about the 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 legal view of what is happening in politics and what is happening in Washington. I think your stuff is like really approachable and really smart and really like captures this without being – um, you know, without being so convoluted and complex that you don't, you know, can't get the story out of it. So, so anyhow, so I just think that's fantastic. And I really appreciate what I consider to be a, a great service, uh, uh, to the craft of, uh, to, to the world of journalism. Um, so okay. thank you for joining us and, uh, and you got to come back maybe after the president is impeached, you can come <laughs> back and, and tell us all about like, uh, uh, what to, how to make sense of the new reality. I hope I, and I hope that's in very soon is, is my hope. <laughs> Bye-bye. 
Well, that's our show for this week. We'll be back next week with more tomorrow. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best. But unfortunately, your family is involved in a very long and complicated lawsuit with the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. And there's no telling how long it will go on for or how much money they'll spend litigating. <laughs>